Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this episode of World of Intelligence with James. As usual, Harry Kemsley, your host, and my co-host, Sean Corbett. Hello, Sean. Hi, Harry. So, Sean, we've been talking about a variety of things in recent episodes. We've started to blend from the sort of conceptual and considerations piece now, increasingly looking at how open sources can be used in an applied way. And given the interest that is being shown in violent extremist organizations, I thought it'd be good for us to actually look at how open source can be used in that topic area. So I'm delighted to invite two guests, Joanna Cook and Shiraz Mayer. Hello, Joanna. Hi. And hello, Shiraz. Hi, Harry. Dr. Joanna Cook is an assistant professor of terrorism and political violence at the Institute of Security and Global Affairs at Leiden University in the Netherlands. She's a senior project coordinator and editor-in-chief at the International Centre for Counterterrorism, also in the Netherlands, and an adjunct lecturer at John Hopkins University in the US. She's the author of A Woman's Place, U.S. Counterterrorism Since 9-11, referred to as groundbreaking and a tour de force. She regularly appears in international media and engages with governmental and international bodies to, to discuss her research, which focuses primarily on terrorism and counterterrorism with a specialization in the roles of women, children and gender dynamics. She is the lead investigator of the EU-funded project PREPARE, which focuses on the risks, stigmas, and resilience factors of children in violent extremist family environments, and has recently conducted extensive fieldwork and visits in Iraq. Dr. Shiraz Mayer is the director of the International Center for the Study of Radicalization and a senior lecturer in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. He is a recognized expert on the current Middle East crisis and jihadist movements. Indeed, the BBC has described him as one of the world's leading experts on radicalization, while the Washington Post has called him a respected specialist on, on Islamic State. His book, Salafi Jihadism, The History of an Idea, has been widely acknowledged as a groundbreaking exploration of the political philosophy behind contemporary jihadist movements. So let's turn to, first of all, what we mean by VEOs, what do we mean by violent extremist organizations? And then if I could ask you to just give us some sense, Joanna, of what that has meant for you in terms of your findings. And Shiraz, if you have anything to add to that afterwards, then please do so. So what do we mean by VEOs and what are your initial findings that we've uh, we've talked about for, through your book? Joanna. Sure. Thank you very much, Harry. So violent extremist organizations are, are organizations, largely non-state organizations, who, who use violence and the threat of violence to to pursue their their goals. And so when we're looking at uh, terrorist organizations in particular, uh, they often have political goals in mind, and it is the the threat or intimidation or the use of violence to pursue those. So these are often actors that do not um, pursue uh, constitutional means, democratic means of, uh, of, of engaging in change, and change, and really those who will use the most uh, kind of violent and extreme means in order to try and push their agenda. So when we're talking about violent extremist organizations, we're, we're talking about uh, the groups that, you know, your your listeners would know are often kind of the listed terrorist organizations or those that otherwise would um, would use illegal means to to pursue change. 
Okay, and would that be um, similar to the same as another acronym we use quite quite frequently, non-state armed groups? Is that the same sort of, or is there any distinction between those two acronyms? I think the way that I would distinguish them slightly is that when we look at terrorist organizations, they they are very much based on on distinct ideologies. So when we look at groups like like ISIS, Al Qaeda, uh, and others, Hezbollah, Hamas, there's often a very uh, distinct ideological basis within those, and that's what really distinguishes uh, terrorist groups from from other armed actors who might um, fall slightly more under the kind of rebel governance or rebel group uh, category where ideology may or may not be uh, as apparent. But for the the groups that we that I tend to focus on uh, quite primarily are Islamist groups, uh, and they are groups that have a very kind of clear uh, ideological basis um, that that informs um, their their goals and the way that they uh, choose to pursue those goals. That's great. Thank you. So Shiraz, if I could ask you then um, perhaps to get us started in terms of your findings, you clearly have done a lot of study. You've captured that in the book, as we've said a couple of times and I mentioned earlier. What are the kind of findings that uh, you've you've taken from that study? I think uh, two things really leap out. The first is that um, if you recall all the way back to September the 11th, George Bush comes out to address the world in 2001 about, you know, what's transpired. He's really talking about one group, Al-Qaeda, and this other group that's hosting it called the Taliban. And and so these two things emerge. And you have this quite top-down structure within Al-Qaeda. It almost has like a military type of structure with a sort of commander-in-chief, Osama bin Laden, at the top of this tree. And then um, uh, it's sort of splintering downwards from that in the way we might think of a conventional armed force. What's transpired over the last two decades of, uh, you know, what we might call the war on terror years is uh, the splintering of this movement. So you've seen a complete alphabet soup of different groups emerge in all kinds of different territories, whether that's in the Horn of Africa, whether that's in South Asia, across the Sahel, and of course, most dramatically uh, in North Africa and the Levant, particularly in Syria and Iraq. And so in in addition to that splintering and diversification of the threat, you're also seeing um, that these are groups that are highly dynamic. They are not just simply popping up with the old sort of whack-a-mole approach of terrorism, uh, uh, such as we saw either with 9-11, 7-7, the Madrid bombings, but they've started to think about longevity, and that longevity is often tied into both holding territory Mm -hmm. and socialising local populations into their agenda. And so the book really aims to get into that side of it, to say, well, what is happening? What are the different things that we're doing? Um, And so we're seeing uh, uh, one of the big themes, for example, in the book is looking at the use of social welfare activism by these groups in different places. So through the provision of services, Uh, Mm -hmm. The state might be either incapable or unwilling to provide uh, for people. These groups are the ones who are setting up alternative structures. That's a very powerful thing because, uh, in a sense, we we take for granted uh, our our sort of basic human security. That is our access to food, clothing, shelter, uh, and those kinds of things. And so uh, for many people, though, that's not a given. And so uh, if you do have... um, Uh, a group on the ground that is able to provide that people don't often have the luxury to sort of say well you know uh, we don't really like their ideological viewpoint about uh, western values or these types of things it's about getting your children fed keeping your family safe ensuring there's a roof over your head Uh, so uh, again the book really drills down to that side of it to understand what those governance structures are looking like so sean just before i come to you so what i think i've heard shiraz is the 
the very structured view that we had 20 years ago has been replaced by two things, uh, a much more splintered dynamic, much more um, aggressively dynamic by the sounds of it, uh, environment for these groups, but equally that they're in some ways putting roots in. They're trying to find territories, communities that they can actually start to, in quotes, own. Uh, social activism is the phrase you've used. Um, so we'll, we'll explore that for a bit in, a, in a, just a second for sure. Um, Sean, you wanted to come in at that point though, I know. Yeah, it's just, uh, it was really neatly put actually, Shiraz, and it's something that, you know, we were looking at in the uh, in defence intelligence side for, for many years, you know, obviously most of our careers was shaped by, you know, countering the VEOs, but one thing that worked on at the strategic level, particularly within our permanent joint headquarters with, uh, with, with my uh, commander of joint operations, and we called it, we need a bigger map, because at that stage, and we're talking about, you know, 2011 onwards, really, what we were seeing is that exactly as you say, the splintering uh, and proliferation actually of these different uh, different groups. But the key question for us, which I don't think we ever satisfactorily act, uh, answered because there was a debate, was you know how much of of it is directed, how much of it is inspired, and how much of it is a is a local thing inspired by social factors. It's the it's the thing you know is all is all um, terrorism local. Because if you look at, and we can you know, go into as many examples as you like, but if you look at each individual country or area, there is always local factors and there's always different uh, interpretations according to that locality. But, and, you know, the key question is, but how joined up is it? Uh, and this is where, of course, the, the you know, uh, Islamic State came up because that was their kind of basic intent. Or was it? Question mark. So you know, it, it's really interesting that all the stuff that you found from an open source perspective really reflects the the sort of real challenges that we had in 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 the sort of secret world, if you like, to identify and understand these things. Yeah, one thing that uh, sorry, Shira, just before you come back on that, one thing that occurred to me, Sean, as um, you started your piece, there was my recollection of in defence military intelligence the the desperate attempt to try and give structure to that which we were facing as a terrorist group. I think what Shiraz has described is that that aspiration was never going to be met because things were too dynamic, too splintered, maybe at the beginning with the way Taliban and Al Qaeda were, were working together, there was some structure that the military could apply itself to because the military loves to find structures that it thinks it can then dismantle by one means or another. But when things are splintered, agile and dynamic, it's very hard to pin down the node to the network because nobody really knows what that network is. Joanna, sorry, looks oh, sorry, Shiraz, you were going to come back on that uh, point from Sean. Though. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's really actually to answer that question, probably six or one and a half a dozen of the other. Right. And and it's uh, to the extent that th there is, of course, great localism at play. The dynamics um, affecting insurgency in Yemen are different to those in the Horn of Africa, despite them right. being quite close, which are very different to the dynamics taking place in Syria and uh, again which play out differently to what's happening in the tribal areas of Pakistan and, and so on and so forth so there is um, clearly a great deal of localism that that does come into play but I think you can also see um, some quite sort of large-scale uh, acceptance among some of the groups for example that the rather brutal draconian ways in which they had previously sought to uh, uh, impose themselves over local populations hadn't been particularly fruitful unsurprisingly when you go in and brutalize people they tend to turn against you and so those populations were turning against those groups um, particularly in the in the sort of late noughties and therefore once we got into that sort of post 2011 phase um, there was a sense of 
uh, uh, more dynamic thinking amongst these groups to say, how do we govern by consent, or at least not by, you know, a consent in the way that you and I would think in the democratic sense, at least by tacit consent, where people will say, we can tolerate them, we're, we're willing to cut a sort of force impact here. Yeah, particularly when, as you say, Shiraz, earlier, uh, the roof over your head, the food on the table, the clothes on your back are being provided by social activism, as you described it, which is, you know, wherever I get my roof, I'll take it because I don't have a roof otherwise. Joanna, perhaps we can um, swing this conversation then from these initial thoughts that you've captured in your book towards, so how did you do that? How did you use the open source environment to drive your insight and your thinking here? Because as you know, from this podcast, we're seeking to understand the power and potential of open source. So let's go back into there and have a look at how did you use the open source environment to, to inform and derive insight that you've now captured in the book? Sure. Well, I think uh, when we're talking about Islamist governance as well, it's important to think about the, the complexities and the dynamics and the different ways in which they envision and implement governance as well. And so really understanding all of the different nuances and, and distinctions in terms of, of what that looks like in terms of their kind of administration, their structures, their exercises of power, how they codify um, jurisprudence, for example. I mean, these are all very distinct aspects of, of, of governance. And it's also each of these has a slightly different way in which they are expressed, in which they're captured. Um, by these groups and how they're presented publicly by these groups too. And so, you know, with with the book, we we have, you know, some world leading experts, each, you know, complete experts on on the groups and in, in which we we look at in there. But one of the the areas that I know almost all of us have have utilized is is the propaganda produced by these groups. You know, this is the way that that these actors have tried to advertise and, and really appeal to to the, their publics, the, the publics that they're trying to appeal to, the support um, base they're trying to appeal to, to offer a, a different vision of of governance to what they, they experience in, in that local context. And so in many of the, the case studies that we look at, they are in, in areas that have either been actively in civil conflict or are in conflict. Um, they have power vacuums. There's often very little governance. And so a lot of what is presented um, in propaganda by these groups tends to be their vision of governance and how that that is being conducted by the group. So, you know, ISIS is an example I, I'm just going to keep kind of coming back to because it's it's one I've focused on the most here. But um, in terms of social welfare activism, trying to demonstrate through videos where they're handing out uh, goods to, to women and children, where they're, you know, helping build roads and, and really um, build infrastructure, this is a way that in their own propaganda that they were producing, they were demonstrating or trying to highlight we are able to produce governance and we are able to, you know, build those roads and keep that water going. And so I think, you know, with and for anyone who looks at open source intelligence, this is going to be true for, for all, but with the rise of the internet, with more and more of this messaging going online, with more communications going online, it has become one of the, the most effective ways in which these groups can communicate with audiences. And we've seen that whether it's um, publications they produce online, whether it's videos they produce online, statements they produce online, or creating even their own kind of news channels and, and mm -hmm. highlighting some of this work. Mm -hmm. You know, the I think the propaganda is one of the most um, prominent ways in which uh, we as, as scholars and researchers have really been able to see how these groups themselves are trying to present their work and their ideas and their and their vision for governance. What kind of uh, challenges, Shiraz, do you have to overcome, though, when you're looking through propaganda? Some of, some of the material can be quite extreme. Some of it can be quite difficult to penetrate in terms of understanding where it's coming from, what it's really trying to say. But how do you how do you overcome the challenges that propaganda or 
channels of various types um, present for you to actually then derive these insights that you've captured? What are the challenges you've got to overcome? I'd say there's probably uh, uh, three challenges that are ranging from the very pragmatic to the sort of more theoretical. So, um, you know, on the one hand, there is uh, um, research of safety involved with looking at after yeah. some of the stuff, right? So some of the material, particularly from jihadist groups, of course, is extremely graphic, extremely violent. And so it's about having a framework in place to ensure the safety of individuals who are going to be looking at that kind of material right. for long periods of time. Um, and I think it's an area where uh, the academic community in particular has been quite slow to move. But recently, um, uh, the center, which I'm co-director, ICSR, and other places as well, I should say, um, have begun to look into it more and more and sort of creating sort of frameworks and best practices in order to sort of promote researcher uh, safety in the space so that's one aspect second thing is you know some of the material is just incredibly dense and very very complex particularly again if i'm talking about jihadist material um uh it can be even some of the muslim backgrounds such as myself who grew up in the middle east like some of this stuff is just so loaded with incredibly um uh dense theological kind of references that it can take ages just to work out exactly what's going on mm. um and stuff. So, so that's, you know, I suppose it's an interesting uh, part of the challenge. But the third one at the very sort of practical end is the operating environment for these groups is very different today than what it used to be uh, uh, at the start of, for example, the Syrian conflict in uh, uh, 2011, which is um, back then, you know, well, I remember when someone messaged me to say that the video of James Foley had been released. Um, now, that was originally released by ISIS on YouTube. That's where you went to get it. And the way I found the link was going onto Twitter, right? So you'd go onto Twitter, get that link, find it. Uh, uh, and then, um, you know, you, you, you have that video. Now, today, the idea of putting up a, a violent extremist link to a video either on YouTube, Twitter, any of the mainstream social media platforms, uh, it's just something that would not happen. Um, the policies are much more robust, but there's a lot of uh, algorithmic programming on those platforms where uh, I think over 98, 99% of the detection actually takes place by the machine before any human reports it or it's you know, detected by a human. So there's a huge amount of automation that's gone into sort of clearing that material uh, off the web um, and stuff. So practically getting hold of that material today is harder. Accessing it is is harder. There are repositories that are being run by some people. Um, uh, I mean, look, many of them are one-man bands, so I wouldn't, you know, there's not criticism of the individuals, but they're not particularly user-friendly is, is uh, uh, um, I suppose, you know, uh, uh, the takeaway. So, so the work has got harder in that sense, right? Particularly someone as myself as a historian, you're looking at lots of documents, you're trying to get through a number of pieces of material to build a picture of what happens over time. Um, uh, it can be frustratingly and painstakingly uh, uh, slow. And of course, some of the, this material just, no one's backed it up. It just disappears into the ether. So you also know sometimes that you saw something, but it's lost. Yeah, right. Frustrating. 
Yeah, Sean, I, I know you want to come in here, but just before you do, I think I'd like to come back in just a moment, uh, Joanna Shiraz, into the sort of disinformation, deliberate misleading of the audience and their misinformation just, you know, by happenstance, not quite understanding something. So let's come back to that point in a second, because you mentioned just there, Shiraz, about as a historian, you're trying to build the picture. Well, of course, the picture you're trying to build is, quote, as close to truth as it can be. So I'm keen to understand that a little bit more. Sean, I know you wanted to come back, though. Yeah, I just want to reiterate um, what both of you alluded to, actually, Joanna use the word complexity and that, that's absolutely critical and this for me is why it's so important that we get brilliant experts such as yourself to look at this i mean i worry these days that um you know the five minute attention span if you like and maybe it's a generational thing you know we live life by sound bites now and and certainly something uh, as complicated and difficult as this unless you get your point across in the first two minutes you know the, the standard person on the street is just not going to read it but the complexity uh, and and you're know, trying to get through what is doctrine versus what is propaganda and of course you know there are so many views i've spent hours and hours in the wee small uh, you know overnight looking at various different uh, documents all the rest of it all of which seem uh, in themselves sort of fairly logical and fairly straightforward but but you know what's accurate what isn't accurate what is just designed to and and of course you know you mentioned the the propaganda piece it's a lot easier to get people aboard propaganda if you just give them a five minute you know spiel and a bit of video and all the rest of it than it is to get really into the depth so that, that's a really strong point which is where we you know coming back to the open source intelligence people not everybody can be an instant expert in fact nobody can be an instant expert particularly in this yeah case. just just before we step into the uh, disinformation misinformation i do recall years ago being in a, a military headquarters ops room looking at uh, real-time events and frankly, not understanding what I was seeing and needing a cultural advisor alongside me to actually explain, no, no, that's not malicious gunfire, that's a wedding and they are celebrating the wedding by firing Kalashnikovs into the sky. Um, there are lots of much, much better examples than that. But the point I'm making is to the point that you made in your challenges piece, Shiraz, in terms of the penetrating the theological aspects of some of the propaganda, let alone understanding it. And to your point, Sean, about you know, our ability to understand what we're seeing in order that we can act upon it in an appropriate way. Um, so, Joanna, I come to you then about how do we triangulate all these different sources to get to, quote, ground truth? I'm curious to know your view on that. Yeah, you know, I was actually just about to put on the the, the lecture hat and, and talk about triangulation of sources, because one of the most critical skills that I think uh, that uh, that our students really need today is critical assessment, critical thinking. And with the rise of misinformation and disinformation, it's going to be one of the most um, essential skills to develop going forward. And, uh, you know, I guess... Uh, as I was thinking about this question a little bit, um, I've been kind of mulling this over this week, and, and particularly in the field of, of terrorism studies and, and looking at um, at groups who who are willing to utilize violence to pursue their means. Um, one of the areas I'm really thinking about a lot lately is, is the rise of artificial intelligence, too, and yeah. how we, we will see this being amplified in, in the coming years as well. And there's a couple areas that I think, you know, whether it's looking at deep fakes, whether it's looking at, um, you know, videos of statements of by politicians that are being manipulated. So it looks like they're saying different things, ways to um, kind of... Um, to really stoke grievances and, and to really... Um, those grievances that might be willing to push people over the edge to join these groups, to take up arms, to take up violence, to pursue their goals. Um, you know, I think we're going into a very, um, uh, a very complex, I'm, I'm going to keep using the word complex because it, mm. it really does cap 
uh, and capture what what we're looking at here. But I think there's a there's a lot of risks inherent with the with the rise of AI that we have already seen. Um, being used by violent extremist organizations previously, but really considering how those could further be amplified and disseminated on a scale um, that we just really haven't seen before. You know, it was only 30 years ago where, you know, to disseminate propaganda, you would get it on a USB stick with a couple files on it, or you would hand over, um, you know, a, a publication or two in, in the flesh. And, you know, today you can get terabytes of data transferred across the world in, in seconds. And, when you're able to operationalize that with AI and multiply that um, on, on scales that we've just never really had access to in, in such a systematic and automated way, uh, automated way, um, there are a lot of concerns with how these groups will will use misinformation and disinformation to to exploit grievances, to exploit um, frustrations felt by people who and and if people do not also have the skills to be able to distinguish what is real and what is not real. You know, I, I do see a lot of uh, reason for concern uh, forthcoming here as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I'm I, going to come to you in just a second, Shiraz, as a historian, because Sean and I often talk in the intelligence context about tradecraft, meaning the capture of good process, good judgment and good sources to, to, to derive insights. Historians ultimately are trying to do exactly that, right? You're trying to find a series of sources. You're trying to understand those sources to come to a a view about a historical perspective on on something. So I'm keen to 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 plunder your mind a bit there in terms of how you perceive these challenges, these rising problems. By the way, we did have a podcast a while back where we looked very specifically at missing disinformation around deep fakes. And the takeaway there was AI is starting to make it such that the human won't be able to detect the missing disinformation. Prior to that, we were talking in another podcast about the need for data literacy as being one of those defenses against uh, the environment that we're now facing, the challenges we're facing in the information environment. I'm not convinced that, that that will be enough. I don't think that being data literate in itself will be enough. And certainly the takeaway I had from that uh, mis- and disinformation podcast we did, Sean, was it's a pretty gloomy future if we've got AI, counter AI, counter, counter AI, and us humans just watching this tennis match going on. But... Facing that challenge as the military intelligence community are, it sounds to me, Shiraz, like that's not that different in terms of problem set to the historian who's trying to capture an understanding to to represent historical fact. Yeah, I think that the, the historian's view of the past is always going to be partial, right? Suffice to say, if, if you know, you're not there, you're not witness to the event, and you're not going to be witness to the whole event, even if you are there, you're only ever going to be able to build a partial picture. And I often think to myself, how different is this um, from some of the earlier work I used to do. So before I, you know, I did my PhD on all this jihadism uh, uh, stuff, but I actually came to it five years after finishing my MPhil, which um, well, I actually looked at um, uh, sort of, well, tangentially, I looked at Muslims who fought in the trenches during the First World War. Um, so, um, yeah, that was also very interesting because at that point you would go either to the British Library and look at the archives there or to the um, what's now the Public Records Office. And again, down in queue, access uh, hard copies of uh, military censors who, who had picked up these letters. And, and uh, these were letters being sent from these chaps in the trenches back home to British India, uh, asking various questions about all kinds of really fascinating things, whether it was all the way from burial rites um, to 
to you know their um, both curiosity and uh, I suppose sort of enamored nature with like French food and all kinds of different things that they were experiencing in the trenches. But again, you're only subject to what the senses then uh, uh, took forward, right? So even with that picture, it's still very partial. You don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're, uh, um, why you know, you're being allowed to see what, what you are being allowed to see and so on. So I think that's an inherent part of the process. And it comes back to the point Joanna was making. You're always going to look to triangulate information. And it reminds me a bit of... Um, uh, uh, the sort of tip a math teacher gave me back at school, which was you might punch something into your calculator. Let's say it's 37 times 24, and you can't immediately calculate what that's going to be. But you have a rough feel. If your calculator comes back with a seven-digit figure, it just feels wrong. It instinct, so you've obviously punched it in incorrectly. So they were saying, look, if a wild number comes back, you, you have an instinctive feel, and, and you, you do it again. And it's that same sort of thing, I think, here. If we are building this picture of the past and we sort of understand there should be a sort of particular arc to this um, and, and and we're not finding that, then, then there are probably other explanations and you're probably going to look to triangulate the information with with other pieces. So in the context of the Syrian civil war, for example, you know, you would triangu triangulate that with uh, interviews that you could conduct, official statements that were coming out, what um, uh, official statements from both the groups, but also from governments. What's uh, Obama or, uh, or, um, or or the British government or the NATO saying about what you know ISIS is doing in a particular town? What are victims of the group saying? You know, did they report massacre at that time. All these kinds of different things to help you understand um, whether a version of events feels. Um, are true or not and, and a really good example of that actually might be um uh, the british journalist uh anthony lloyd from the times who um did a really good reconstruction of uh perhaps you know what happened with uh, john cantley the last sort of british hostage in syria and you know um uh, it's, it's a fascinating podcast but one of the things um that you know i remember discussing with him was this fact that um there was a view and there was a, a rumor, really, which was hard to substantiate, that, that Candley had been killed in uh, in Mosul as a result of sort of uh, uh, just the general war that took place. He was, he was a victim at that point. And we know there was a video of Candley uh, inside Mosul made at a particular date and time, by which point you could see that Mosul had been pretty much besieged, it had been blocked off, and there were really very few escape routes out. So that means by sort of probabilities he was in the town at that time and then there's a secondary piece of information corroborating or suggesting that he may have been killed so it sort of feels about right right and given what else we know um so it's that kind of way that you might look to say um uh, uh how can we test the veracity of a particular piece of information that we're being given yeah i'd like to come back on that that note about partial view um because I'm of the opinion, I'm happy to be shot down in flames, of course, but I'm of the opinion that the open source environment is so incredibly vast, incredibly varied and moving and changing so quickly that actually these days is probably easier to get a less partial view than it would have been going to the public records office when, as you say, that which was stored and, and kept was was censored to some extent by somebody in, in some, some process. Sean, Sean, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's just, I mean, it's something that I feel really keenly having, um, if you like, suffered the the people who write the history. It is, it is true are those that uh, that tend to win or certainly those ones that tend to articulate it and get heard most. 
And, uh, you know, the political angle of it cannot be ignored. I mean, I'm thinking specifically about, um, you know, both the Libya campaign and uh, and Kosovo, where the reality on the ground and, and what actually happened is somewhat different from the messaging that has now been accepted as, you know, the, the ground truth, if you like, or certainly the narrative. And of course, the same is going to be always going to be the case in uh, in, in other areas, uh, as Shiraz said as well. So I think, you know, it, it behoves us to make sure that we don't have that certainly conscious bias. But, you know, I was going to say unconscious bias, but how do you know you've got unconscious bias if it's unconscious? Mm. <laughs> but, but you know, so back to that objectivity and, and as we always talk about the tradecraft, making sure that you look at all sources all perspectives that you can possibly get hold of. Yes, of course, you've got to weight them. And, and you know, the, the proof of the pudding always is, is, is in the, okay, that was my, my uh, assumption. What has actually happened to either support that assumption or, or to actually uh, challenge it? And when looking at these uh, security challenges, what other sources of OSINT would you say are high value? I was thinking quite a bit about Bin Laden's bookshelf, and I'm not sure if you've talked about that on another podcast as well, but uh, it might be an interesting just little point to to bring into the discussion at all, but how violent extremist organizations use open source intelligence. Um, So the um, the Department of National Intelligence... um, you know, they they do host Bin Laden's bookshelf. So all of the in the Abbottabad raid, all of the files that were taken are now open access. And so actually, there are programs like um, the DNI's um, bookshelf or um, the Harmony program at um, West Point that that do have violent extremist items or items found with them that are now open access for researchers as well. And it's a really great resource for for us to to look at these a bit more but we don't have to talk about that at all but would that, I just, would that uh, also nope. though would that also not be a great way of understanding the inspirations that the the foundations of thought that we've seen come through people like bin laden looking at what he's been reading is that not a a reasonable extrapolation he's been reading this stuff he's got to this place we can see where it came from now Absolutely. And Nellie LaHood has just done an excellent book on this. And so she's reviewed the entire bookshelf tediously and, and um, been able to, to really look at that. But, you know, we have seen more initiatives, again, by whether it's West Point, whether it's uh, DNI, um, where, you know, these documents that have been amassed from um, some of these locations, from violent extremist actors more generally, are being made open access or through, um, you know, they're giving uh, permission to researchers to to access these um, these files. And it's it's an incredible resource for us to kind of work hand in hand with with intelligence that is being gathered out there where we can also bring our, our academic and our research hats and, and try and help interpret it in different ways. Yeah, sure. Um, I think that's a great point, actually, Joanna. And for me, that blurs the distinction between classified intelligence and open source intelligence, because when those documents first uh, mm-hmm. came out of the raids, they were incredibly highly classified, such that those of us in the community were trying to get hold of what was in there, and we couldn't, you know, unless you're in that particular compartment, and there's a handful of people, you couldn't. So now to hear that they're out in the open domain, you know, it gives you a little bit of a wry smile, because why, why wouldn't they be in the end of the day? Okay, they had to be triaged, they had to be analyzed initially to see if there was any real intelligence value, particularly actionable intelligence value. But, you know, having looked at that, it's, you know, it's doctrine, it's all the, it's, it's, it's you know, basically it's a library. Um, I think that's a really good point. So, guys, I think we'll um, start to 
circle this round. So I'm going to ask uh, both you, Shiraz, and Joanna for a uh, one-liner takeaway that you'd like the audience to remember from this conversation. I think that's probably sometimes the most effective way of getting the audience to remember at least one thing, and we'll do that right at the end. For me, though, I think what I'm taking away, and Sean, I'm going to go first this time just to make sure that I eat your sandwiches before you get a chance to uh, make them. Um, I, I really do like part of our conversation we've had today around how we're using propaganda and the the real challenges that's creating now with um, with AI and how that's getting in the way. We've talked about it before, but for me, I don't think we've answered that question. I don't think we've really got to the bottom of how do we deal with this emergent threat to understanding when AI is so sophisticated, so capable, and increasingly so, that the human is increasingly unable, even just through data literacy, to spot the difference. I do take the point you made, Shiraz, though, about that just doesn't feel right. But if all we're left with is that feeling in the water about mm, doesn't say, then we, we're probably going to get left behind, I suspect, by AI capabilities. For me, that's probably the big takeaway for, for me today is that sense of the tradecraft, the historian's approach being increasingly chipped away, made less secure by capabilities that are coming through on the open source environment. Joanne, I want to come to you next. What's the one thing you want the audience to take away from this conversation today? Sean, you're, you're, you are going to go last, Sean. Well, I, I think, Harry, that, you know, I, I, I offered a perspective of slightly doom and gloom before, and, and that is certainly part of how I, I still think about uh, the, the place that we're going to. But I also think about the kind of opportunities that uh, that AI can provide in, in this space as well. And uh, I'll give you one example. So uh, in 2018, me and, the, me and my colleague Gina Vale had we we saw a gap in in what we knew about um, ISIS at that time. We we there was no global figures that that helped us understand what proportion of people traveling to join Islamic State were women and what proportion of those were minors being taken over there as well. And we we were able to through a, a very meticulous. Uh, open source um, search where we searched over 90,000 items across three databases and triangulated this uh, as we could. Um, but we were able to get together a global data set of, of women and minors who had traveled to join Islamic State and demonstrate with evidence that 25% of those were that were traveling were, were women and minors. Um, but we could also see that there were significant data gaps as well. So you know, out of all the countries we looked at, there were 80 countries we could ultimately include. Only half of those even had statistics on women and minors. Mm. And and so there were a lot of challenges. We, we were able to demonstrate something that hadn't been demonstrated before through the use of open source intelligence. But I also think now about the kind of opportunities that that AI may lend to this. So the, the painstaking search that we did, how could we use AI, for example, to help facilitate that search? How could that's we use point. it to... Yeah, that's a great point. So how can we use AI to also better understand dynamics of these groups, bring that information together more effectively, use it for our purposes to better understand the groups, their motivations, the actors involved, aims, you know, all of the components that help us understand those tactics, strategies, objectives, and so forth. Um, so there is a doom and gloom angle to it, but if used correctly, I think it can also be an asset to researchers who are using open source intelligence to understand these groups, their dynamics, their actors, and so forth. And, uh, you know, I continue to look at, at women and minors um, today, and I've just finished an EU-funded project looking at children who grow up in violent extremist affiliated families. Uh, so really understanding how the, the life and development of children is impacted if, if 
dad's a neo-Nazi, if mom's a jihadist, how does that impact the, the life of the child? And there's not a lot of public information about these, but what there are are narratives in the public space by individuals who've grown up in those types of families that help us better understand things like the impacts of missing parents if they're dead or in prison, the kind of traumas that they've experienced, if they experienced alternative curriculums or, or were put into alternative peer groups and so forth. There are, again, through those kind of open source um, narratives and stories and journalistic accounts that have helped us better understand that where there has been little research. And as a researcher, for me to um, to, to go and speak with children from ISIS-affiliated families that have come back, there's, there's a lot of ethical issues with that. And, sure. and it is a way to help to help kind of square that a little bit more and access information in a way that is helping us build our understanding more more thoroughly and again through triangulation of sources not only those open source narratives stories news reports and so forth but then also speaking with practitioners and um and extended families and so forth but i think that's another uh, kind of useful way that um, that open source intelligence has helped us understand an aspect of, of violent extremist organizations and particularly those affiliated with or impacted by them that we might not think about as kind of primary actors, but those kind of on the periphery of those those most uh, violent actors. So using AI for positive as well as uh, negative, I think is the is the is the piece in there that you've highlighted. I think that's a, a good point, Joanna. Thank you. I guess I was a little bit longer than a, a single takeaway line, wasn't it? <laughs> no, no, no. It's a good line. It, it doesn't matter how long the line is. It's a good line. Shiraz, your takeaway for the audience. I think we uh, I've come back to where I started really in that um, you know. The groups we're looking at, the groups we're talking about in terms of governance, these are adversarial groups that don't stay static. They react, they innovate, they adapt, uh, and they're pioneering, which I think um, speaks to the fact that they have been uh, so resilient and been able to endure two decades of a, of a war on terror, right? So um, uh, technology goes hand in hand with that. The jihadist movement, I would say, has always been actually really very much at the forefront of sort of uh, technological innovation, understanding it, utilizing it, and finding um, uh, uh, sort of malignant uses for it, right? So, so there's been this sense of uh, um, uh, innovation on their side that has been uh, um, you know, relatively dangerous in terms of utilizing, harnessing what's already there. So I would expect to continue to see now, um, you know, as AI becomes something more prominent in the public domain, as um, we're looking towards, you know, increasingly decentralized social media platforms. Not something we've talked about a lot here, but um, you know, putting information on the blockchain, for example, would make it extremely difficult to remove content uh, once it's there. So, you know, if I upload um, uh, an ISIS video to uh, YouTube, YouTube will just simply remove it, and once it's gone, it's gone. But if I put it on the blockchain, and you know how to find it on the blockchain, you can't actually remove it from there. Uh, all you can try to do is sort of block the tools by which individuals might find it. So my point being, this is going to continue to be an adversarial space, both of uh, innovation on our side, where governments, I'm sure all kinds of people and, uh, you know, GCHQ and all sorts of places like that will be trying to develop technologies to, to thwart and get ahead of that. And in, this, in exactly the same way, all kinds of people out, you know, in the deserts of Deir Ezzur and Syria and elsewhere will be thinking of ways to get ahead of that, right, to, to, yeah. to do it. So um, we're going to continue to see um, 
uh, adversarial shifts in and around this, and that's going to define, again, the next phase of whatever that tussle between uh, ourselves and the jihadists looks like. Yeah, the VEO use of technology. I, I remember a book I read, goodness me, a number of years ago, I think it was Koran, Kalashnikov and Laptop, which is basically looking at how the Taliban were using the information space back in the early part of this of this century, and they were doing it quite effectively. And what you're saying, Shiraz, is that that effectiveness and that use of technology is actually blazing a path in many ways. They're, they're really, really using the technological environment to their own effect very, very well. Sean, the final word uh, to you. Two points, but they're very brief ones. One is a thread that I come back to again and again, but I think it it is never more pertinent than here, that you, know, you need that combination of what I would call tradecraft, you would call tradecraft, with that expertise, the experience, and the deep understanding, and then overlay it with the technology, which has been braved, if, if we've any chance of actually understanding what is actually going on. And then to take it forward from that, you know, I think it's really important that people like yourselves are doing this because we ignore this particular security challenge at our peril. And Harry, you've heard me say this again and again, is that, you know, we're all being, and it's not distracted because it's very serious and, and it needs that focus, but we are looking now predominantly at state on state actors, whether that is, you know, Russia invading Ukraine, whether it's belligerent China trying to increase its influence. And, it, and it's almost as if we've, we've done that counter-terrorist piece so we can just yeah. park it. Uh, and so we don't need to worry about it. Someone needs to worry about it because this is not going away. And with the, you know, the ungoverned spaces and the increasing food insecurity, war insecurity, you are going to ferment more and more um, environments in which this will be um, incubated. So we need to keep looking at it. And if the defence and military and the agencies aren't looking at it in as much depth as they were, and even even if they are, we still need that foundational under deep understanding of what is going on and, and what the context is. Well, thank you, Sean. Uh, Shiraz and Joanna, what can I say? Thank you so much for an engaging conversation and for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, in the link for this podcast, there will be details of the book that you've written, and I sincerely hope that that gets read widely. Because, as Sean just said, this is not a topic that's gone away. This is a topic that has been somewhat masked by recent state-on-state -state activities, but is still very, very much a matter that we need to think about. So, Shiraz, Joanna, thank you so much for joining us. And for our listeners, we'll be back soon. Thank you both. Thanks, Thank you Harry. so much. Thanks for joining us this week on the world of intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, chains.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.